Welcome back, everyone. And a special thanks for your participation with our Wyatt Earp Facebook thread and for your kind reviews. I think most of you would agree that we have told the story accurately thus far. And if you're seeing Wyatt the way I am, he was a complex individual with twice most people's share of both courage and audacity. The most interesting part of the story, at least for me, is here in part three, the part most people haven't heard yet. So lean back, grab that cup of coffee, keep your eyes on the road, and get ready to enjoy. Wyatt Earp, part three, The Vendetta. Here's a rundown on where we are at this point in the story. Virgil was ambushed on December 28, 1881, just weeks after the shootout at the O.K. Corral while walking between saloons on Allen Street in Tombstone, and he was maimed by a shotgun blast which struck his left arm and shoulder. Ike Clanton's hat was found in the back of the building across Allen Street from where the shots were fired. Wyatt wired U.S. Marshal Crawley P. Dake, who you remember gave Virgil that appointment, asking to be appointed Deputy U.S. Marshal with authority to select his own deputies. Dake granted the request in late January and provided the herbs with some funds that he borrowed from Wells Fargo, variously reported as between $500 and $3,000. U.S. Marshals take care of their own, and this ambush wasn't going to go unanswered. And that brings up a good book referral for you. There was a great book that came out about five years ago written by Mike Earp about his years with the U.S. Marshals Service. It's called U.S. Marshals Inside America's Most Storied Law Enforcement Service. And yes, Mike is related to Wyatt, and keeping up the tradition. I own the book, and it's a great read. I thought I'd recommend it to you. Back to our story. In mid-January, Earp's ally Rickabaugh sold the Oriental Saloon to Earp's adversary, Milt Joyce. So Wyatt sold his gambling concessions at the hotel. The Earps also raised some funds from sympathetic business owners in town. And by the way, there were many who wrote letters backing the Earps after being jailed Wyatt. But Bean and the forces aligned against Earp were doing all they could to smear the Earps, and Earp didn't want to shine a bad light on the U.S. Marshal's service. So, Wyatt and Virgil submitted their resignations to Dake on February 2, 1882, but Dake refused to accept them, because their accounts hadn't been settled. They still owed him the money. On the same day, Wyatt sent a message to Ike Clanton that he wanted to reconcile their differences, which Clanton refused. Clanton was also acquitted that day of charges against him in the shooting of Virgil, when the defense brought in seven witnesses who testified that Clanton was in Charleston at the time of the shooting. History, of course, will reveal that he wasn't. The Earps needed more funds to pay for the extra deputies and associated expenses, as contributions from supportive business owners were not enough. On February 13th, Wyatt mortgaged his home to lawyer James G. Howard, for $365, which would be about $9,500 today. And by the way, he was never able to repay the loan, and Howard foreclosed on the house in 1884. Morgan Earp was murdered on March 18th while playing billiards. That was 1882. Shot by gunmen firing from a dark alley through a door window into the billiard room where he was playing. He was struck in the right side. The bullet shattered his spine, passed through his left side, and lodged in the thigh of George A. B. Barry, while another round narrowly missed him. A doctor was summoned, and Morgan was moved from the floor to a nearby couch while the murderers escaped in the dark. 
Morgan died 40 minutes later. Wyatt felt that he could not rely on civil justice and decided to take matters into his own hands to kill the murderers himself. It's for sure Sheriff John Behan wasn't going to do it. The day after Morgan's murder, Deputy U.S. Marshal Wyatt Earp formed a posse made up of his brothers James and Warren, Doc Holliday, Sherman McMaster, Jack Turkey Creek Johnson, Charles Harelip Charlie Smith, Dan Tipton, and Texas Jack Vermillion to protect the family and pursue the suspects. And these men's names might not be known to you, but they were known in their time. Perhaps the toughest to figure out in terms of what side he was on was Sherman McMaster. McMaster had worked for the Texas Rangers in 1878, the same year that he first met Curly Bill Brocious, by most accounts, and was very respected for his talents with a gun. In July of 1880, he was suspected of stealing U.S. Army mules and two horses from a camp near Tombstone. He was also a suspect in a stagecoach robbery near Globe, Arizona. On February 24, 1881, two men robbed the stage traveling between Globe and Florence. When they found that the Wells Fargo and Company's strong box was empty, they stole the U.S. mail. Pony Deal and McMaster were suspects. In Tombstone, City Marshal Virgil Earp knew that McMaster was wanted for the robbery. But according to the Tombstone epitaph, Virgil had received instructions from Pima County Sheriff Bob Paul to wait to arrest McMaster until Deal was in custody. On September 10, 1881, Marshal Virgil Earp attempted to arrest McMaster, who resisted. McMaster fired several shots at Virgil before escaping. But think about it. McMaster wasn't the kind of man who would miss twice. Some accounts have since indicated that McMaster was possibly working undercover for the Rangers to break up the outlaw cowboys. He was probably ordered to gain their trust, and that I can see as being the stage robbery with the empty strongbox. By the time the clash between the Earps and the cowboys came about, McMaster's allegiance was all with the Earps. He played an important role in the vendetta, and he stayed loyal to the Earps all the way. Turkey Jack Johnson was very likely John Johnson, a frontier marshal in Nebraska in the 1870s, who would change his name depending on which crowd he was hanging with later in the 80s. He was in Deadwood when Hickok was killed, and was known as a heavy poker player. Dan Tipton had served in the Navy aboard the USS Malvern during the Civil War, and was in the pool room that night Morgan was shot. He wanted to even the score for Morgan. And Texas Jack Vermillion was an ex-Confederate who had served under Nathan Bedford Forrest. He came to Tombstone in 1881 and served as special police for Virgil at times. Morgan died within hours of being ambushed. They took Morgan's body to the railhead in Benson, and James accompanied it to the family home in Colton, California, where Morgan's wife and parents were waiting to bury him. The posse guarded Virgil and Allie to Tucson, where they had heard that Frank Stillwell and other cowboys were waiting to kill Virgil. The day after Morgan Earp's murder, coroner Dr. H. M. Matthews held an inquest in which Pete Spence's wife, Marietta Duarte, stated that her husband Pete and Frank Stillwell, Indian Charlie, Frederick Bode, and an unnamed half-breed had returned home only one hour after the shooting, and that her husband, Pete Spence, had threatened her with violence if she told what she knew. Witnesses said they saw John Behan's former deputy, Frank Stillwell, running from the scene. 
The coroner's jury concluded that Spence, Stillwell, Frederick Bode, a man named Fries, and Florentino Indian Charlie were suspected in Morgan Earp's assassination. Spence immediately turned himself in so that he would be protected in Bean's jail and very likely let loose again, which is exactly what happened. Wyatt concluded that the only way to deal with Virgil and Morgan's attackers was to root them out and kill them. On March 20th, Deputy U.S. Marshal Wyatt Earp received information that Frank Stilwell, Ike Clanton, Hank Swilling, and another cowboy were watching the passenger trains in Tucson intending to kill Virgil Earp, who had escorted his dead brother and wife to California. Wyatt and his deputies accompanied Virgil and Allie to the railhead in Benson. Fearing another attack, they decided to stay with Virgil and his wife aboard the train to Tucson, armed with pistols, rifles, and shotguns. McMaster had prepared for a war. He wore two belts of cartridges. Virgil said later that he had Allie wear his pistol belt where he could easily have access to the weapon if he should need it. Virgil and Allie were scheduled to catch a train in Tucson for Colton, California, where the Earp's parents lived. Upon their arrival in Tucson, the Earp posse spotted Stillwell and other cowboys. Almost the first men we met on the platform there were Stillwell and his friends, armed to the teeth, Virgil later told the San Francisco Examiner. They fell back into the crowd as soon as they saw I had an escort, and the boys took me to the hotel to supper. Watched over by the well-armed Wyatt and his posse, Virgil and Allie had dinner in Tucson at Porter's Hotel, then reboarded the train. As the train pulled away from the station, gunfire was heard. Witnesses said they saw men running with weapons, but they could not identify anyone. Wyatt later told his biographers that he saw Frank Stilwell and another man he believed to be Ike Clanton armed with shotguns lying on a flat car. When Wyatt and his men approached, the two men ran. Stilwell stumbled, allowing Wyatt to catch him. Wyatt later claimed he shot Stilwell as he attempted to push the barrel of Earp's shotgun away. It's very likely that Stilwell stumbled because Wyatt had shot him in the legs, wanting to get information out of him before the final shot. Ike Clanton escaped, something he was proving himself as very good at doing. Afterward, he gave interviews to the newspapers in which he claimed that he and Stilwell had been in Tucson to respond to federal charges of interfering with the U.S. mail carrier stemming from Stilwell's alleged participation in robbing the Bisbee stage on September 8, 1881. According to Ike, Stilwell disappeared from the hotel before he was found shot dead by the track several blocks away. Ike said they heard that the Earps were coming via train with plans to kill Stilwell. Other whitewashed bogus accounts reported that Clanton and Stilwell went to the train depot to meet a witness named McDowell, who was to appear before the grand jury. Only upon their arrival at the depot did they learn the herbs were in Tucson. Stillwell's body was found the next day alongside the tracks, riddled with two full rounds of buckshot, one in his leg and the other in his chest, both marked with powder burns, along with four other bullet wounds. His own pistol had not been fired. George Hand, who saw the body, said Stillwell was the worst shot-up man I ever saw. If you're ever at the Amtrak station at Toole Avenue in Tucson, you'll see the memorial that was created near the spot where Stillwell met his bloody end. And the memorial wasn't built for Stillwell. In a March 1882 interview with the Arizona Daily Star, Virgil Earp told the reporter, 
Before Stillwell died, he confessed that he killed Morgan and gave the names of those who were implicated with him. When my brothers were leaving Arizona, they got dispatches from Tucson saying that Stillwell and a party of friends were watching all the railroad trains passing that way, and they were going through them in search of all Earps and their friends, carrying shotguns under their overcoats and promising to kill on sight. Our boys, said Virgil, were bound to look out for themselves, and when they got near Tucson, they were very cautious. They found Stillwell near the track and killed him. Frank Stillwell's known brother, Comanche Jack Stillwell, soon heard of his brother's death and went west with hopes of avenging him, but he never reached Tombstone and soon went back without doing so. The next man on Wyatt's list was Pete Spence. The Earp posse briefly returned to Tombstone where Sheriff Bean tried to stop them, but they brushed him aside. Harelip Charlie and Warren remained in Tombstone, and the rest set out for Pete Spence's wood camp in the Dragoon Mountains. As it turned out, Spence was absent, but they found and killed Florentino Indian Charlie Cruz. This was Earp's account, taken by his biographer Stuart Lake, of the killing of Indian Charlie. Earp told Lake that he rode into camp and immediately recognized Indian Charlie. While he questioned Judah, he waited for Cruz to betray himself. And sure enough, Cruz, thinking he was out of sight, began running up an incline. When the suspect was about 100 yards up the draw, Wyatt ordered crack-shot Sher McMaster to bring him down, but not to kill him. After the shot rang out, Cruz grabbed his left thigh and collapsed. Wyatt gathered up Cruz, who, with the help of translations from McMaster, broke down and offered to tell what he knew of the outlaw plots. Cruz ratted out the shooters of Virgil Earp as being Frank Stillwell, John Ringo, and Hank Swilling, the son of late Jack Swilling, the founder of Phoenix, Arizona. Frank Stillwell was the one who shot Morgan, said Cruz, while Curly Bill Brocious and Hank Swilling shot at Wyatt, but their shots missed. Cruz also said he heard Stillwell brag he had killed one herb and put another, Virgil, out of business. Cruz also gave them the names of the perpetrators of the December 15, 1881 attack on Earp family friend John Clum, who wasn't mentioned in this story. But Earp would cross paths with John Clum again up in Alaska as a business partner. In response, Wyatt asked Cruz, Neither of my brothers nor I ever harmed you, did we? Cruz replied, No. Then what made you help kill my brother? Cruz told Wyatt that the cowboys were his friends and that Curly Bill had given him $25 to stand watch. Wyatt admitted later to Lake, That $25 business just about burned me up. According to Wyatt, he challenged Cruz to a duel, giving him the chance to draw his weapon any time he liked. Counting to three in Spanish, Wyatt drew, and Wyatt's pistol, according to Lake's story, flashed from the holster and roared three times. You can take that any way you want. Many believe the Cruz went out the same way that Stillwell did. It had now been 96 hours since the assassination of Morgan, and two suspects had paid for his death with their lives. After the killing of Florentino Cruz, Wyatt Earp sent Dan Tipton and Origin Harelip Charlie Smith into Tombstone on a twofold mission. Convince mining magnate E.B. Gage to give them $1,000 to fund the Vendetta Posse 
and scout around to see what Sheriff Bean and the Cowboys were doing. No doubt suspicious, Bean ended up arresting the two on March 23rd on charges of resisting arrest and conspiracy. Both men were soon released on bail, the bail raised by Bob Hatch, who was owner of the saloon where Morgan Earp had been shot and killed, on March 25th, and the hollow charges were dropped. Smith headed off immediately to rejoin Wyatt's crew. Tipton stayed in Tombstone until he heard from Wyatt. Then he collected the money from Gage, and possibly another $1,000 from unknown donors, and made his way to Henry Clay Hooker's Sierra Bonita Ranch, north of Wilcox, where he rejoined the Earp Riders on March the 27th. Two days later, on March 29, 1882, they stumbled onto the wood camp of William Curley Bill Brocious, Pony Deal, and other outlaw cowboys near Iron Springs in the Whetstone Mountains. According to reports from both sides, the two sides immediately exchanged gunfire. Most of the Earp party withdrew to find protection from the heavy gunfire, except for Wyatt and Texas Jack Vermillion, whose horse was shot. Curly Bill fired at Wyatt with a shotgun, but missed. Remember, Wyatt had protected Curly Bill against a mob ready to lynch him 18 months before, and Earp provided testimony that helped spare Curly Bill from a murder trial and most likely a rope for killing Sheriff Fred White. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Wyatt returned Curly Bill's gunfire with his own shotgun, hitting him in the chest from about 50 feet. Curly Bill fell into the water by the edge of the spring and died. Wyatt then fired his revolver, mortally wounding Johnny Barnes in the chest and wounding Milt Hicks in the arm. Texas Jack tried to retrieve his rifle, which was wedged in the scabbard, under his fallen horse, which had been hit, exposing himself to the cowboy's gunfire. And at that point, Doc Holliday came under fire to help him, and got him to cover. Earp told biographer Stuart Lake that both sides of his long coat were shot through and another bullet struck his boot heel. Ed Colburn wrote in a letter published in the Ford County Globe on May 23, 1882, that he had visited with Wyatt and Warren Earp in Gunnison, Colorado. In the letter, he relayed Earp's story about how his overcoat was hit on both sides of his body by a charge of buckshot and that his saddle horn was shot off. John Flood later wrote, The saddle horn had been splintered, his coat hung in shreds, there were three holes through the legs of his trousers, five holes through the crown of his sombrero, and three through the brim. Earp was finally able to get on his horse and retreat with the rest of the posse. Some modern researchers have found that most saddle horns by this time were made of steel, not wood. Earp told several versions of the story in which he had trouble remounting his horse because his cartridge belt had slipped down his legs. He was never wounded in any of his confrontations, which added to his mystique. They say about some people, it just wasn't their time, and in Herb's case, that seems to hold true. The posse left the cowboys behind and rode north to the Percy Ranch, but they weren't welcomed by Hugh and Jim Percy, who feared retaliation from the cowboys. 
They left around 3 a.m. on March 27th after a meal and some rest. They arrived near Tombstone and met with supporters, including Harelip Charlie Smith and Warren Earp. In the middle of April 1882, the Earp Posse left the Arizona Territory and headed east into New Mexico Territory and then on to Colorado. The coroner reports credited the Earp Posse with killing Frank Stilwell, Curly Bill, Indian Charlie, and Johnny Barnes in their two-week-long ride. In 1888, Earp gave an interview to California historian Hubert Howe Bancroft, during which he claimed to have killed over a dozen stage robbers, murderers, and cattle thieves in his time as a lawman. And at some time during that vendetta, either Earp or other members of his posse took out Johnny Ringo as well, and we told that story a little bit earlier. The gunfight in Tombstone lasted only 30 seconds, but that ended up defining Earp for the rest of his life. His movements began to receive national press coverage after he killed Frank Stilwell in Tucson, and he left Arizona with his brother Warren, Doc Holliday, McMaster, Turkey Creek Jack Johnson, and Texas Jack Vermillion. They stopped in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where they met up with Earp's friend, Deputy Marshal Bat Masterson, and Masterson went with them to Trinidad, Colorado, where he opened a faro game in a saloon and later became marshal. Earp dealt faro at Masterson's saloon for several weeks, then left for Gunnison, Colorado in May of 82 with McMaster, Vermillion, and Warren. The Earps and Texas Jack set up camp on the outskirts of Gunnison, where they remained quietly at first, rarely going into town for supplies. And from there, they traveled to Albuquerque. It was in Albuquerque that Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday had a parting of ways. No one knew until recently what had caused the blow-up. In 2001, a letter was discovered that apparently provided an incredible answer. Holliday had called Earp a damned Jew boy during lunch, and the famous gambler and sheriff walked out in a huff. According to the unsigned letter, apparently written by then-Governor of New Mexico Territory Miguel Antonio Otero, Holiday had been rattled by the sight of Earp doing the mezuzah at the home of his Jewish friend, businessman Harry Joppa. More importantly, perhaps, Holiday might already have been aware of Earp's budding relationship with Josephine Sadie Marcus, a San Francisco Jewess, as Otero noted, who was now ending her marriage to Earp's big rival, Tombstone Sheriff Johnny Behan. Josephine had run away from her home in San Francisco at the age of 14, joining a traveling theater called Ms. Pauline Markham's HMS Pinafore, hoping for adventure and trying to get away from a poor neighborhood in San Francisco. They arrived in Tombstone the same week that the Earps did, and the acting troops stayed for weeks in that area. When they pulled out, now 15-year-old Josephine stayed behind with the 33-year-old Sheriff Johnny Behan, who was married at the time. That relationship, once discovered, caused him his marriage and a nasty divorce. Wyatt's wife was suffering from terrible headaches and was taking laudanum to counter that, but she became hooked on the laudanum and became very sick. It was during this time that he met Josephine and they hit it off, causing Bean to swear he would get revenge on Wyatt, and Bean did his best for the next 20 years. Again, Wyatt's story here, nothing to serve as a role model for anyone. Wyatt and Josephine would spend their remaining years together. She would later write a book titled, I Married Wyatt Earp, which for years became a strong source for reference, 
but has lost a lot of its reputation recently as new information becomes available. Josephine whitewashed quite a bit, and her two years from the time she ran away from home until she left Tombstone with Wyatt were basically a blank, which she described as an unhappy time in her life. Researchers now have done a pretty good job connecting her with Sadie Marshall, same age, same place, working as a soiled dove in Tombstone during those years, so there is little doubt that Josephine changed her identity to cover her tracks. When she left with Wyatt, it served in creating a new slate for her. She fought for years with biographers to keep her history unknown and to keep Wyatt's slate clean, including threatening lawsuits against anyone who printed history of either of them that she did not agree with. And it was in 1882 that Wyatt and Josephine headed for San Diego. The San Diego Union printed a report from the San Francisco Call on July 9, 1882, that Virgil Earp was in San Francisco receiving treatment for his shattered arm, and that Wyatt was expected to arrive from Colorado that day. Wyatt took a job managing a horse stable in Santa Rosa. He quickly developed a reputation as a sportsman as well as a gambler. He was reputed to own a six-horse stable in San Francisco, although it was learned later that the horses were leased. Following Wyatt's return to San Francisco, Josephine began using the name Josephine Earp. Josephine was Earp's common-law wife for 46 years until his death. Wyatt and Josie remained in San Francisco for about nine months until early 1883 when they left for Silverton, Colorado, where silver and gold mining were flourishing. If both of them had one similar trait, it was that they both craved adventure and kept moving. Silverton was the first of many mining camps and boom towns in which they lived. However, Wyatt still owned a house in Tombstone with his former common-law wife, Maddie Blaylock, who had waited for him in Colton, California, where his parents and Virgil were living. During the summer of 1882, she sent him a letter saying that she wanted a divorce. She had met a gambler from Arizona, and he had asked her to marry him. Earp did not believe in divorce, and refused, but she ran away with the gambler anyway. The gambler ended up abandoning her in Arizona, so she moved to Penal City, Arizona, where she resumed life as a prostitute. She struggled with addictions, and ended up committing suicide by opium poisoning on July 3, 1888. By 1884, Earp had arrived in Eagle City, Idaho, along with Josephine, his brothers Warren and James, and James's wife Bessie. Eagle City was another new boom town growing from the discovery of gold, silver, and lead in the Coeur d'Alene area. It's now a ghost town in Shoshone County, Idaho. Earp joined the crowd looking for gold in the Murray Eagle Mining District, and they paid $2,250 for a 50-foot diameter white circus tent in which they opened a dance hall and saloon called the White Elephant. And it did well. Earp was named deputy sheriff in the area, including newly incorporated Kutenai County, Idaho, which was disputing jurisdiction of Eagle City with Shoshone County. There were a considerable number of disagreements over mining claims and property rights in which Wyatt and James Earp were involved. The Coeur d'Alene mining venture died out by 1887. So Earp and Josephine went to San Diego, California, where the railroad was about to arrive and a real estate boom was underway. 
They stayed for about four years, living most of the time in the Brooklyn Hotel. Earp speculated in San Diego's booming real estate market, and he bought four saloons and gambling halls between 1887 and 1896, all in the respectable part of town. They offered 21 games, including faro, blackjack, poker, kino, pedro, and monte. At the height of the boom there, he was making up to $1,000 a night in profits. He also owned the Oyster Bar located in the first granite-faced building in San Diego, the four-story Lewis Bank Building at 837 Fifth Avenue, one of the more popular saloons in the Stingaree District. One of the reasons that it drew a good crowd was the Golden Poppy Brothel upstairs, owned by Madame Cora. Each room was painted a different color, such as emerald green, summer yellow, or ruby red, and each dove was required to dress in matching garments. Earp had a long-standing interest in boxing and horse racing, and he refereed boxing matches in San Diego, Tijuana, and San Bernardino. In the 1887 San Diego City Directory, he was listed as a capitalist or gambler. He won a racehorse named Otto Rex in a card game and began investing in racehorses, and he also judged prize fights on both sides of the border. He was one of the judges at the county fair horse races held in Escondido, California, in 1889. The boom came to an end as rapidly as it had started, and the population of San Diego fell from a high of 40,000 in 1885 when Earp arrived to only 16,000 by 1890. The bloom was off the rose in San Diego, so the Earps moved back to San Francisco in 1891, and that gave Josephine a chance to be closer to her half-sister Henrietta's family and Earp continued his entrepreneur career as a sportsman and a gambler. He held on to his San Diego properties, but when their value fell, he couldn't pay the taxes and was forced to sell the lots. He continued to race horses, but he could no longer afford to own them by 1896, so he raced them on behalf of the owner of a horse stable in Santa Rosa, which he managed. In Santa Rosa, Earp personally competed in and won a harness race. From 1891 to 1897, the couple lived in at least four different locations in San Francisco, and maybe one of you listeners out there knows where these addresses are. 145 Ellis Street, 720 McAllister Street, 514A 7th Avenue, and 1004 Golden Gate Avenue. Josephine wrote in her memoir that she and Earp were married in 1892 by the captain of multimillionaire Lucky Baldwin's yacht, off the California coast. Raymond Nez wrote that his grandparents witnessed their marriage, but no public record has been found for the marriage. Baldwin was a horse breeder and racer who also owned the Santa Anita racetrack in L.A., which Earp frequented. Side note, I lived in Arcadia for two younger years, close enough to hear the starting call at that track, and I can still remember it today. Earp's relationship with Josephine was tempestuous at times, she gambled to excess, and he had adulterous affairs. He knew that she preferred being called Josephine and detested his calling her Sadie, but he had a mischievous sense of humor and began calling her Sadie early in their relationship just to get her goat. And remember, she didn't want to be reminded of those two years in Tombstone, and so it must have needled her. Earp's good friends in the Welsh family did not appreciate Josephine's gambling habits, and they noted that she received an allowance from her half-sister, Rebecca, and gambled it away, often placing stress on their finances. As an example, 
In the 1920s, Earp gave Josephine signed legal papers and filing fees to a claim for an oil lease in Kern County, California. She gambled away the filing fees and lied to him about what happened to the lease, which later turned out to be valuable. He distrusted her ability to manage her finances and made an arrangement with her sister Henrietta Lenhart. He put oil leases in Henrietta's name with the agreement that the proceeds would benefit Josephine after his death. In February of 1926, the oil well was completed and producing 150 barrels a day. But Henrietta's three children refused to keep the agreement after their mother's death and kept the royalties to themselves. Josephine sued her sister's estate in an attempt to collect the royalties. According to one source close to the family, Josephine later developed a reputation as a shrew who made life difficult for Herb. She frequently griped about his lack of work and financial success and even his character and personality, and he often went on long walks to get away from her. He was furious about her gambling habit, during which she lost considerable sums of money. Josephine could also be controlling, and a relative of Wyatt joked that nobody could convict him of cold-blooded murder because he'd lived with her for almost 50 years. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. True to his nature, he tried to stay busy with other projects, and bare-knuckle fighting was one of those projects. He had worked as a paid ref for a few fights, starting up in Alaska, and one really ended up doing a number on him. Earp was the last-minute choice as referee for a boxing match on December 2, 1896, which the promoters billed as the heavyweight championship of the world, when Bob Fitzsimmons was set to fight Tom Sharkey at the Mechanics Pavilion in San Francisco. Earp had refereed 30 or so matches in earlier days, though not under the Marquess of Queensbury rules, but under the older and more liberal London prize ring rules. The fight may have been the most anticipated fight on American soil that year. Fitzsimmons was favored to win, and the public and even civic officials placed bets on the outcome. Fitzsimmons dominated Sharkey throughout the fight, and he hit Sharkey with his famed solar plexus punch in the eighth round, an uppercut under the heart that could render a man temporarily helpless. Then, at Fitzsimmons' next punch, Sharkey dropped, clutched his groin, and rolled about on the canvas, screaming foul. Earp stopped the bout, ruling that Fitzsimmons had hit Sharkey below the belt. But virtually no one had seen the low punch. Earp awarded the fight to Sharkey, whom attendants carried out as limp as a rag. 
the 15,000 fans in attendance, at least the ones who had money on Fitzsimmons, greeted his decision with loud boos and catcalls. It was widely believed that no foul had occurred and that Earp had bet on Sharkey and threw the fight on purpose. But several doctors verified afterward that Sharkey had been hit hard below the belt. Yet the public had bet heavily on Fitzsimmons, and they were livid at the outcome nonetheless. Fitzsimmons went to court to overturn Earp's decision, and newspaper accounts and testimony over the next two weeks revealed a conspiracy among the boxing promoters to fix the fight's outcome. Newspapers across the United States republished the stories from the San Francisco papers and looked for local angles. In December of 1896, the San Francisco Call quoted a story from the New York Journal by Alfred H. Lewis, who accused the Earp brothers of being stage robbers, and Earp was parodied in editorial caricatures by newspapers across the country. Stories about the fight and Earp's contested decision were distributed nationwide to a public that knew little of Wyatt Earp prior to that time. It was a bad way to be introduced into the public consciousness. On December 17th, Judge Sanderson finally ruled that prize fighting was illegal in San Francisco and the courts would not determine who the winner was. Sharkey retained the purse, but the decision provided no vindication for Earp. Until the fight, Earp had been a minor figure known regionally in California and Arizona. Afterward, his name was known from coast to coast. The boxing match left a smear on his public character, which followed him until he died and afterward. And here's the final twist. Eight years later, Dr. B. Brooks Lee was accused of treating Sharkey to make it appear that he had been fouled by Fitzsimmons. And Lee admitted that it was true. I fixed Sharkey up to look as if he'd been fouled, he confessed. I got $1,000 for my part in the affair. So it looks like Wyatt got what he deserved, a big nick in his legend that left him a tarnished hero for all time. After the fight, it was time to move on. It was August 5th, 1897, and Wyatt and Josephine left for San Francisco. Earp was reported to have secured the backing of a syndicate of sporting men to open a gambling house in the now-booming Alaska. They intended to catch a ship to Alaska, but their departure was delayed for seven weeks when Wyatt fell while getting off a Market Street streetcar and bruised or broke his hip. Josephine got pregnant as well, and she thought she could persuade Earp from heading to Alaska. He was in agreement, but Josephine, who was 37, miscarried soon after. They finally boarded the steamship Rosalie on September 21, 1897, and northward they went. They arrived in Dawson in the Yukon in late September 1897, where Wyatt planned to open a faro game. Wyatt and Josephine spent only a month in Dawson. Wyatt was offered a job as the Marshal of Wrangell, Alaska, but he was only able to serve for ten days when Josephine announced that she was pregnant again, and they had to return to San Francisco on October 11th aboard the steamship City of Seattle. But unfortunately, she miscarried again. When she recovered, they headed north again, spending the winter in Wrangell before setting out in the spring for Dawson on board the Governor Pingree via the Yukon River. By the time they reached Rampart in the Yukon River, a freeze-up had set in. The Earps rented a cabin from Rex Beach for 100 a month 
and spent the winter of 1898-1899 in that cabin. They left the cabin with the spring thaw and headed for St. Michael on the Norton Sound, a major gateway to the Alaskan interior via the Yukon River. Wyatt managed a small store during the spring of 1899, selling beer and cigars for the Alaska Commercial Company. But Wyatt's friend Tex Richard sent him a number of letters belittling Wyatt's steady but small income in St. Michael as chicken feed and persuaded him to relocate to Nome where things were happening. Nome, Alaska, in 1900, was about two blocks wide and five miles long. At the time of the Earp's arrival, the best accommodations Wyatt and Josie could find was a wooden shack a few minutes from the main street, only slightly better than a tent. The river was an open sewer. Typhoid, dysentery, and pneumonia were common. In September, Earp and partner Charles E. Hoxie built the Dexter Saloon in Nome, the city's first two-story wooden building and its largest and most luxurious saloon. The second floor had 12 club rooms decorated with fine mirrors, thick carpets, draperies, and sideboards. Trading on Earp's name, part of which was still intact after the fight, it was used for a variety of purposes because it was so large, 70 by 30 feet with 12-foot ceilings. Earp used the club rooms upstairs as a brothel, another fact that Josephine worked hard to see was omitted from stories about him. She justified the services upstairs because the Dexter was a better-class saloon and served an important civic purpose. The Dexter drew anyone famous who visited Nome. Wyatt rubbed elbows with future novelist Rex Beach, writer Jack London, playwright Wilson Misner, and boxing promoter Tex Rickard, with whom Earp developed a long-lasting relationship. And any of you listeners who haven't heard our Jack London short stories, at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, have a real treat. Take a minute to subscribe to that podcast we do, and you'll enjoy not only Jack London, but a host of other great short story writers. Rickard was a partner in the Northern Saloon and Gambling House in Nome. Both the Dexter and the Northern Saloon competed for business with more than 60 other saloons in town, serving an estimated 20,000 residents. Wyatt told others he made his money by mining the miners. He was arrested twice in Nome for minor offenses, including being drunk and disorderly, although he was not tried. On July 6, 1900, Wyatt's brother Warren was shot and killed in a saloon in Wilcox, Arizona. Wyatt learned about his death soon after, and although some modern researchers believe he went to Arizona to avenge his brother's death, the distance and time required to make the trip made it unlikely, and no contemporary evidence has been found to support that theory. As it turned out, James did investigate that out in Arizona on the quiet and found out that his brother Warren had been pushing that confrontation with the foreman of the aforementioned Hooker Ranch. The two didn't get along at all, they were constantly arguing, and on one night Warren pushed him into a gunfight, then made the mistake of walking up on him without a gun, challenging him to shoot it, and after missing Warren four times, the fifth shot hit him in the chest and killed him. He seemed to be pushing his way toward an early grave, Maybe trying to pick up the reputation that his brothers had? Who knows? 
In November of 1899, Earp left Alaska on the 258-foot iron steamer Cleveland. The ship was infested with lice and was struck by a storm on the Bering Sea, making it a pretty difficult trip. It took nine days to reach Seattle, Washington. Earp arrived in Seattle with a plan to open a saloon and gambling room. On November 25th of 1899, the Seattle Star described him as a man of great reputation among the toughs and criminals, inasmuch as he formerly walked the streets of a rough frontier mining town with big pistols stuck in his belt, spurs on his boots, and a devil-may-care expression upon his official face. The Seattle Daily Times was less full of praise, announcing in a very small article that he had a reputation in Arizona as a bad man. Earp faced considerable opposition to his plan from John Considine, who controlled all three gaming operations in town in Seattle. Although gambling was illegal, Considine had worked out an agreement with Police Chief C.S. Reed. Earp partnered with an established local gambler named Thomas Urquhart, and they opened the Union Club Saloon and gambling operation in Seattle's Pioneer Square. The Seattle Star noted two weeks later that Earp Saloon was earning a huge following. Considine unsuccessfully tried to intimidate Earp, but his saloon continued to prosper. After the city failed to act, on March 23, 1900, the Washington State Attorney General filed charges against several gamblers, including Earp and his partner. The club's furnishings were confiscated and burned. In February of 1902, Wyatt and Josie arrived in Tonopah, Nevada, known as the Queen of the Silver Camps, where silver and gold had been discovered in 1900 and a boom was still underway. Wyatt and Josie opened the Northern Saloon in Tonopah and he served as a deputy U.S. Marshal under Marshal J.F. Emmett. His saloon, oil, and copper mining interest produced some income for a period. After Tonopah's gold strike waned, they moved in 1905 to Goldfield, Nevada, where his brother Virgil and his wife were living. Tex Rickard was also already there and had opened a second northern saloon. He hired Wyatt as a pit boss. Wyatt also staked mining claims just outside Death Valley and elsewhere in the Mojave Desert. In 1906, he discovered several deposits of gold and copper near the Sonoran Desert town of Vidal, California, on the Colorado River and filed more than 100 mining claims near the Whipple Mountains. While in Los Angeles, they lived in at least nine small Los Angeles rentals as early as 1885 and as late as 1929, mostly in the summer. The Earps bought a small college in Vidal, the only home they ever owned. Beginning in 1911, and until Wyatt's health began to fail in 1928, Wyatt and Josie summered in Los Angeles and spent the rest of the year in the desert working their claims. The Happy Days Mine was located in the Whipple Mountains, a few miles north of Vidal. Wyatt had some modest success with the Happy Days Gold Mine, and they lived on the slim proceeds of income from that and oil wells in Oakland and Kern County. About 1923, Charles Welsh, a retired railroad engineer and friend that Earp had known since Dodge City, frequently invited the Earps to visit his family in San Bernardino. When the Welsh family moved to Los Angeles, the Earps accepted an invitation to stay with them for a while in their top-floor apartment until the Earps found a place to rent. After Wyatt and Josie moved into a bungalow nearby, Charlie Welsh's daughter, Grace Spolidora, 
recalled that Josie, who had never had any domestic skills, did very little housekeeping or cooking for Wyatt. She and her sister Alma were very concerned about the care that Josephine was giving Wyatt. Though he was at times very ill, she still didn't cook for him. Spoladora, her sisters, and her mother were bringing him meals and trying to keep him healthy. We already know from episode one about Earp becoming an unpaid film consultant for several silent cowboy movies and becoming friends with William Hart and later Tom Mix and John Ford, Harry Carey, and a very young John Wayne. One story we didn't share yet, in 1916, Earp went with his friend Jack London, whom he knew from Nome, to visit the set of former cowboy, sailor, and movie actor-turned-film director Raoul Walsh, who was shooting at the studio of Mutual Film Conglomerate in Edendale, California. Walsh took the two men to dinner at Al Levy's Cafe on Main and 3rd Street in Edendale. During the meal, the highest-paid entertainer in the world, Charlie Chaplin, dropped by to greet Wyatt Earp. Chaplin was impressed by both men, but particularly the former Tombstone Marshal. In the early 20s, Earp was given the honorary title of Deputy Sheriff in San Bernardino County, California. On January 25, 1926, Wyatt's only surviving brother James died of cerebral apoplexy in San Bernardino. Earp tried to persuade his good friend and well-known cowboy movie star William S. Hart to help set the record straight about his life and get a movie made. If the story were exploited on the screen by you, he wrote Hart, it would do much towards setting me right before a public which has always been fed lies about me. Hart encouraged Earp to first find an author to pen his story. So Earp began to collaborate on a biography with his friend and former mining engineer John Flood to get his story told in a way that he approved. And Flood volunteered his time and attempted to write an authorized biography of Earp's life based on Earp's recollections. The two men sat together every Sunday in the kitchen of Earp's modest rented bungalow. And while Wyatt sipped a drink and smoked a cigar, they tried to tell Earp's story. But Josie was always present. And she often interrupted and insisted, You can't write that. It needs to be clean. She also demanded that they add more pep to the manuscript, which in her mind meant including the word CRACK in all caps. In the chapter about the shootout, the manuscript includes 109 uses of CRACK, meaning the sound of a gun shooting. She thought Earp needed to be shown as a hero, and the manuscript includes a chapter titled Conflagration, in which Earp saves two women, one a cripple, from a tombstone fire. Flood's writing was stilted, corny, and one-dimensional, and the manuscript, completed sometime in early 1926, never found a publisher. In February of 1927, editor Ann Johnston of Bob's Merrill wrote back and was highly critical of the stilted, florid, and diffuse writing. She wrote, Now one forgets what it's all about in the clutter of unimportant details that impedes its pace and the pompous manner of its telling. Spoladora, as a teenager, had visited the Earps many times near her family home in Needles, California, and she sometimes went to San Diego with them. In an interview with the San Bernardino Historical Society in 1990, she attributed the highly exaggerated stories about Wyatt Earp to Josephine. Josephine, quote, would always interfere whenever Wyatt would talk with Stuart Lake. She always interfered. 
She wanted him to look like a church-going saint and blow things up. Wyatt didn't want that at all. The cowboy movie star Hart tried to help. In February of 1926, he wrote the Saturday Evening Post and encouraged them to publish Flood's biography so that the rising generation may know the real from the unreal. But Flood was a bad writer, and publisher after publisher rejected the manuscript. Several copies were made and sold in 1981, and the original carbon copy of the typed manuscript, found among Josephine Earp's papers, was given by Glenn Boyer to the Ford County Historical Society. Wyatt Earp was the last surviving Earp brother and the last surviving participant of the gunfight at the O.K. Corral when he died at home in the Earp's small rented bungalow at 4004 West 17th Street in Los Angeles of chronic cystitis on January 13, 1929, at the age of 80. The Los Angeles Times reported that he had been ill with liver disease for three years. His brother Newton had died almost a month prior, December 18, 1928. Wyatt was survived by Josephine and sister Adelia Earp Edwards. He had no children. Charlie Welsh's daughter, Grace Spoladora, and his daughter-in-law, Alma, were the only witnesses to Wyatt's body's cremation. Josephine was apparently too grief-stricken to assist. The funeral was held at the Congregational Church on Wilshire Boulevard. Earp's pallbearers were William J. Hunsacker, Earp's attorney in Tombstone and noted Los Angeles attorney. Jim Mitchell, a Los Angeles Examiner reporter and Hollywood screenwriter. George W. Parsons, founding member of Tombstone's Committee of Vigilance. Wilson Misner, a friend of Wyatt's during the Klondike Gold Rush. John Clum, a good friend from his days in Tombstone, former Tombstone mayor and editor of the Tombstone Epitaph. William S. Hart, good friend and Western actor and silent film star. And Tom Mix, friend and Western film star. Mitchell wrote Wyatt's local obituary. The newspapers reported that Tom Mix cried during his friend's service. When Josie did not attend Wyatt's funeral, Grace Spoladora was furious. But she didn't even go to his funeral even, she said. She wasn't that upset. She was peculiar. I don't think she was that devastated when he died. Josephine, who was Jewish, had Earp's body cremated and secretly buried his remains in the Marcus family plot at the Hills of Eternity Memorial Park, a Jewish cemetery in Colma, California. When she died in 44, her body was buried alongside his ashes. She had purchased a small white marble headstone which was stolen shortly after her death in 1944. It was discovered in a backyard in Fresno, California. A second stone of flat granite was also stolen. On July 7, 1957, grave robbers dug into the Earp's grave in an apparent attempt to steal the urn containing his ashes. Unable to find his cremains, they stole the 300-pound gravestone. Actor Hugh O'Brien, who was playing Earp in the 1955-61 television series the life and legend of Wyatt Earp, offered a reward for the stone's return. It was located for sale in a flea market. Cemetery officials reset the stone flush in concrete, but it was stolen again. Actor Kevin Coster, who played Earp in the 1994 movie Wyatt Earp, offered to buy a new, larger stone, but the Marcus family thought his offer was self-serving and declined. Descendants of Josie's half-sister Rebecca 
allowed a Southern California group in 1998 to erect the stone currently in place. The earlier stone is on display in the Colma Historical Museum. Two years before his death, Earp defended his decisions before the gunfight at the O.K. Corral and his actions afterward in an interview with Stuart Lake, who authored that 1931 biography, Wyatt Earp, Frontier Marshal. Earp said, For my handling of the situation at Tombstone, I have no regrets. Were it to be done over again, I would do exactly as I did at that time. If the outlaws and their friends and allies imagined that they could intimidate or exterminate the Earps by a process of murder and then hide behind alibis and the technicalities of the law, they simply missed their guess. I want to call your particular attention again to one fact which writers of tombstone incidents and history apparently have overlooked. With the deaths of the McClowries, the Clantons, Stillwell, Florentino Cruz, Curly Bill, and the rest, organized, politically protected crime and depredations in Cochise County ceased. And that's as good a place as any to end our story about Wyatt Earp. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you enjoyed the story and found a lot of new things you didn't know before. If you do enjoy our show or any of our shows, please do send us a review. We would appreciate that very much and show a friend or family member how to subscribe to our show. We have four shows at 1001 Stories Network, that being this one, 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, 1001 Stories for the Road, and 1001 Radio Days. We appreciate your support at all four shows. Thank you very, very much. And here are some new reviews. This one, five stars. Very informative and interesting. Excellent podcast for the history buff. That one from Texas Jack via Apple Podcast US. And this one, awesome storyteller, five stars. Have listened to every episode of all three 1001 podcasts. Just love all of them. Never turn my car radio on anymore. Waiting for next episode. Keep up the good work. That one from 12OC3112, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, ERP, five stars. Good choice in having shows about the Old West. That one from Market Pop, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, like listening to a close friend, five stars. This podcast is one of my all-time favorites. John uncovers interesting stories and tells them so eloquently that they're a complete joy to listen to every time. John, thank you for all the research you do and the effort you put in to tell these stories in an organized manner. That one from Janique, Apple Podcast, U.S. This one, five stars. Look forward to it every week. Awesome, from Tim Tipton One, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, great job, five stars. I really enjoy listening to all of your shows. You do a great job with each one. I've never been disappointed with any of them. That one from Thad67, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, five stars. Very interesting. I was very intrigued by the information on this podcast. I'd recommend this podcast to any history buff. That one from Mike Malati, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, addictive. Five stars. I can't stop listening. I find myself lingering in my car just telling myself, I'll go in at the next commercial. There is something for everyone here. Thank you for filling my everyday with great stories and even better company. That one from Blue Guffaw, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you all so very, very, very much for taking the time to sit down 
and write these reviews. They help us in a big way. Thanks a lot for being great fans. And we're going to work on brand new episodes, brand new stories, right now. We'll see you next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Everybody stay safe and take care. inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.